Hello, I'm Danielle Rodeutschen, and welcome to the third episode of Violet Sessions, a series of podcasts featuring women discussing their innovative projects and creative processes. In this episode, I'm talking to Penny Martin, editor of The Gentlewoman. The title of the talk is Soft Glamour, Hard Copies and The Gentlewoman, and it took place on the 9th of November 2016 at East London Bakery Violet, in front of an audience of about 20 people. Here's what Penny had to say. Hi, Penny. Hi, Danielle. <laughs> Welcome to Violet Sessions. Thank you. Um, so firstly, congratulations on the latest issue of The Gentlewoman, which features a very striking photo of Zadie Smith. She's, of course, pr- um, promoting her new novel, Swing Time. Um, how does it feel seeing it on the shelves? Well, it's been um, a few weeks for us. We are uh, in a fortuitous situation where we were able to get quite a heads up on her. And it's only now that all her press is coming out because I believe the book is out next week. She's touring it just now. So actually, we were a long time ahead of um, the kind of press junket. Um, And uh, as a result, we only got 15 pages of the book in advance. Um, But that was great, actually, in the end, because comparing the piece that we've got with a lot of the ones that are running just now, we weren't really just inside the book. And sometimes it can be a bit frustrating, I think, reading a very long form piece that's about a book that you haven't read. So it meant that Sophie Elmhurst, the writer, had to really write, give kind of a lot of backstory and also focus on something different. And we got a really interesting interview about out of her. <clears throat> She's talking a lot about what it's like to be a writing mother and uh, acknowledging that she doesn't have the kind of ideal state as conceived by other people of being a kind of writer um, who gets complete peace and is away from their family. But, you know, she's got kind of little snatched moments in between the school run and picking up and all that sort of other thing and what it's like to write when you've got no mental peace, which I thought was really fantastic and surprising and we couldn't have anticipated that in the brief. So um, we were really lucky in the event. And I suppose you've got to think about having the... um the magazine's on the shelf for six months, isn't it? So you've got to think about how how that how the image is going to hold for that long. Yeah, that's certainly the case with um, uh, um, briefing the photograph uh, photography team. Um, the photographic team's obviously directed by our art director Veronica Ditting, who's in the house with us tonight. Um, and yeah, that's certainly the case. You've got to anticipate with a star like her that's going to have a lot of imagery out how to make something very different whilst kind of making it comfortable for them she's not a model so she needs to feel like she looks like herself and she's not kind of being uh, made over um, <laughs> um, I always love the expression that Anya Varda, the film director, she said, don't make me up like a stolen car, which <laughs> um, I always kind of like to kind of keep in mind when it comes to the visuals. Up. And then, uh, yeah, with the story as well, it's about something that you want to dip into more than once when you're on shelf. You've got the kind of shelf life that we have. And also the way that my experience of editing the magazine is that people come back to you and talk about stories that maybe were like two years ago as if you've only just published them. So you have to... You know, whereas, say, the Sunday Times magazine might write a piece as if they're going to maybe write about Zadie Smith in a year and a half's time and probably wrote about her a year and a half ago, and you don't give that entire all singing, all dancing kind of profile. Whereas for us, um, it's, we're only going to do them once, so it really needs to be our very best effort. And sometimes maybe we would include research and a secondary voice from people to really give a sense of how they started as well as where they're going. And maybe that might not be the same for a newspaper, which might just publish an encounter. And I wonder if that's why you sort of managed to attract quite, you know, really big names. I'm thinking of, you know, you get Beyonce and Adele, Yuck. Yeah. 
Yeah, we've been really lucky from the outset. Uh, you know, the start, we, 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 our first um, cover star was Phoebe Philo and she's barely done a cover since. And, you know, I, I, the number of times we get approached about syndicating that story. How did you get her? Well, in truth, <laughs> she owed me a favour, I think she thought. Um, she was very open in that. I reread that interview and I was quite impressed at how open she was with you. I thought you must... Maybe I didn't know how you managed to draw her out. She had a fantastic agent who sadly is no longer with us, Katie Baggett, who was the um, uh, agent of Jurgen Teller, amongst other people, um, Fergus Henderson and many others. And um, <clears throat> Katie remembered that I'd done the last interview with Phoebe when she was at Chloe. And um, I think Phoebe gave me a more forthcoming interview than she intended to. And I got out of the door and I was gasping, saying, I, I think she's going to leave. I think she's going to leave. And I got in touch with my editor at Japanese Vogue at that time and said, listen, do, do you want that story? And she's like, "That I don't think the advertising team want that story, Penny. And they said, just remember, up, 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 was her words. And I, I, got, in touch, <laughs> I got in touch with Katie and said, um, Katie, look, I think she has been far more forthcoming than she meant to be. What do you want me to do with this? Of course, if she was trying to seed a controversial story and she wants me to go off to another publication, I'll do it. But I can't think that that's what she meant. And they got back to me and said, no, Penny, maybe it'd just be better to keep your, that under your hat for now. And, I, I, you know, she went off and, mm. you know, spent time with her family and she did some consulting to Gap, allegedly. Um, mm. And uh, then when it came round... Uh, for her to be starting Celine. I think she'd already been speaking with our creative director of Jotman Benekom with regards to what the kind of creative direction of the graphic world... Of, Why of, was she talking to them about that? She's talking to lots of uh, creative right. directors in advance. Uh, I think they ended up working with Peter Miles, but, you know, yeah. uh, Katie was friendly with Jop. So you sort of had this quite... It was quite sort of fortuitous in a way, wasn't it? You see, if there's a sort of shared aesthetic between the gentleman and Celine in a way when you launched in 2010? Yeah, I think it probably seemed that way. I mean, um, uh, Veronica is a much uh, more um, expert uh, typographical kind of historian than I am. But, I, uh, you know, it's not that we necessarily had exact same typefaces, etc. But I think there was a shared appreciation of a very modernist um, uh, approach to many things and typography, you know, especially there's a lot of references from Bauhaus and all those other things. And I think that kind of very candid mode of photography um, and just uh, if you, it's hard now, I think, because there's so many magazines that it's hard to remember what we were really looking at at the very end of the yeah. 90s and the, uh, sorry, the end of the thousands and the start of the kind of this decade. But the, there was a much more kind of commercial. Uh, mode of photography etc and I think that we all looked pretty dry in a weird way it was a sort of like a restraint and almost defining ourselves by what we weren't at the gentlewoman I think in, in Celine as well it was very sartorial it's about clothes and not fashion it was about personality and not celebrity and those are kind of glib binary distinctions but I think we understand what we're talking about and, and they, they they kind of started in a similar way I would I wouldn't say we're exactly the same now but I think it was easy to kind of imagine us as, as, as similar kinds of women maybe that we were speaking yeah. to as the kind of people that Celine were trying to capture the imaginations of because um, I wanted to ask you about the um the sort of mission that you you know you had a, you started with a mission when you launched the gentleman and it's something that we've spoken about and it was very much something that you said uh you wanted to sort of challenge this sort of hyper image of women that seemed to have become prevalent in the media at the time 
um, sort of vacant stares and this 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 sort of fashion, this idea of women um, who don't seem to live live a normal life, but they they wear high heels everywhere and they have tons of money to spend. Well, there's two things going on there, aren't there? I mean, in one, I mean, it's not so much even the vacant stares. It was just that you saw a lot of their bodies. There was just like an extreme kind of fashion where there was there wasn't an inch that went unexplored, kind of almost outside and in nearly um, in the fashion imagery and then uh, the other part which you're talking about the kind of amount of access you really had to people's minds in those interviews where they've been so heavily mediated that you didn't get a sense that they'd really um, had much more time with somebody than 20 minutes before the publicist was possibly jumping in to stop anything going any further and so on one hand you saw everything and you heard nothing so it was almost to try and restore the balance a little bit so in terms of the fashion imagery and things that were published in the gentlewoman to begin with look at phoebe on the cover she's pretty covered up i think she's almost got a scarf right up to her chin you know and um that wasn't really what you saw on the cover of biannual women's magazines even even Mm. the biannuals Mm. never mind the weeklies at that time and then the other thing was to say that you know i I can't remember how many pages were in the first gentlewoman was like about 130 or something i think it's about three 130 now so it's a really different kind of balance but if you look at the 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 proportion of of writing to imagery is possibly just about the same I can't speak but I mean certainly the amount of advertising is still only 30 30 under 30 percent but that kind of commitment to hearing what people thought um it's easy for me to say that, but there's a whole lot of things happening in the background. If, if, you, if you commit to being that, it means that my job is taken up with kind of a, a good fifth of my job probably is having conversations with our supporting brands to make sure we ring fence that space because you're always having to protect it. Most advertisers would, of course, love you to show much more of their product. Yeah. And if you've got massive pages of 4,000 word articles, that means there's no sh- practically no room for shopping pages of shoes and handbags and things. So th- that puts a lot of pressure on the fashion department to come up with some really elegant solutions to make sure that you feel that you're seeing something that's kind of aspirational and has a lot of visual pleasure, despite the fact there's so much writing. Yeah, because I wanted to come to this point that you'd made, this thing you mentioned to me when we were talking earlier of of, um, what you call soft glamour, (laughs) uh, which I think is to do with the aesthetic of the magazine. Um, And I wanted to know if you want to talk a bit about that, what it means. it's to say that I think you can show women as glamorous without having to... Uh, replicate that kind of high octane, hard glamour that you associate, you know, in its uh, most extreme form with, say, the seventies and you know things that we we love. But you know, the Guy Bourdin and 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 um, kind of hard. Um, so it's not like aggressive, the sort of uh, well, high no, octane glamour. Well, I would I wouldn't say you'd think it is. No, and uh, and it's not that kind of abstraction and formalism. I think in fashion photography, but. Um, that I do think that, uh, separate point, I, I think that um, it, it does a lot for serious women to inject a bit of warmth and glamour and kind of humour, not really slapstick and not kind of um, uh, a farce. You know, I think Fantastic Man and certainly Butt Magazine, from which it was kind of, it grew out of, get away with a lot more kind of gonzo humour, kind of gaze on roller skates kind of humour or you know, um, uh, I'm trying to think of kind of people, w- w- the sort of extremity of kind mm. of non-stop Do you think uh, the gentleman has hu- a sense of humour? Like yeah, but I think you have to be really careful with it because you don't want it to be so ridiculous that it retri- trivialises a serious woman. You're not really <laughs> going to get many politicians that want to be in something that looks um, hysterical um, but I think that that kind of 
deadpan wit does a lot for a serious woman in our context because you definitely don't want those people when you contact them or ask them to be in your magazine to end up being the equivalent of, say, in your average kind of monthly women's magazine, if a politician or maybe a woman in science or something like that, or maybe even a theatre actor, um, is photographed, you know how it's going to look. It's so different from the way that Yasmin Lebon's going to be photographed as she's in that magazine. Uh, they'll be going to be photographed from the side like a pieta because it's an easier sitting position and they'll be in kind of really serious, dry clothing. And by that time, you, just, you know, it's just so grey and boring. You just, you know, that's the piece you're not going to read. Whereas it's our job, I think, to inject the same warmth and humour and, and kind of glamour into a series, you know, that, that's the job. And it's much harder, for sure. Mm. I mean, it, God, it's so much easier to make a 15-year-old, of course, look super glamorous in a sample. That's just a completely different thing mm. from what we have to do. We're looking at women that are probably in their 40s and their 50s because that's when they've made it mm. and that they've got something really to talk about. Um, and, yeah, of course they're not going to fit in a sample because what 40-year-old women does... Um, and we've got to make sure that they look just as glamorous and sensible and in control of themselves yeah. and fabulous. I think you called it solution-based styling when well, you mentioned it to me, which... Yeah, I, I was kind of breaking down the kind of formula. Yeah, I mean, that's the only way you can do it, isn't it? But the, the formula of what our fashion is, and usually in our in our well, in our in what we call the book, um, the, the section that's not interrupted by advertising, which is your big editorial statement, there's always going to be a story in there that's kind of like your pragmatic solution to your girlfriend. It's a bit like you're going out shopping on a Saturday and you're like, OK, we've only got two hours and mm-hmm. you've only got this amount of money and, OK, <laughs> the trends are the trends, but... I think pretty much, you know, you're going to look great in a pencil skirt and a fuzzy jumper, so that's what we're going to get. And you'll see it eight different ways. And there's always a story a little bit like that that's kind of a friendly, unfrightening, uh, but, you know, sensible solution for something that kind of feels timely but isn't going to make you look ridiculous or make you regret having spent that amount of money by next season, I think. And and someone mentioned to you about the sort of idea of the solitary woman. They commented on the fact that... The women in the shoots often tend to be alone or not reacting to their environment or ah, other people yeah. in the shoots. This is a criticism that was made of us, I think, around about issue eight. Um, uh, well, actually, it was made by a PR that... Um, uh, Lonely in her success, I think, is the actual quote <laughs> yeah. that I wrote down. Well, he, yeah. he wanted a bit more of his product in the story. <laughs> right. and he was uh, So that's the backstory to that comment. But he was sort of saying, you know, oh, you know, a lot of the women in your magazine feel like they're the kind of solitary woman. And to be fair, most of the women that are maybe in politics or kind of the woman that's head of manufacturing or the woman astronaut, she probably is the only woman in the room. Um, But I I think the way we were discussing it was that it tends to be one of the considerations for us. Yeah, we'd love to be able to photograph five models all at a time, but often that can be the thing that you're mitigating against, that agents often want their model to be the only model in the story. So for Veronica and I to manage to entice more than one woman onto the page... It's like a practical thing, really. Yeah, Yeah. it is, it is. But um, uh, I think... there have been examples where there's very successful stories that have had two women. There's one brushing one <laughs> other woman's hair, <laughs> yeah, which yeah, now I, I say it, when I hear it in words, it sounds totally ridiculous. But it's very good. I don't mind yeah. telling you. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, and in the, your shoots are very good and, and, and so good that I always notice how much other magazines copy what you've done. Um, <laughs> and how do you feel about that? You sort of like casual plagiarism <clears throat> that goes on. Um, from things, you know, I don't even want to mention actual titles, but, you know... No, I don't think you should. <laughs> um, um, 
Well, I uh, used to work at... Um, I, the, the way I often answer this is I used to work for um, fashion photographer Nick Knight and uh, in the studio of an, a designer called Peter Saville. And sometimes uh, we, my, me and my colleagues, used to hear them kind of responding to something that they would see where they'd just been downright copied. And at that time, what, I was 28 or something, I used to think, oh, God, how petty. They're really successful guys and, you know, what do they care? And now when it happens, I've got to tell you, it does hurt because... Um, you, you've done, you've pulled that off with virtually no uh, resources, and and you know you're a, you know we're not a niche magazine. We print ninety nine plus thousand twice a year. That's much bigger than most independents. But quite often the people that are ripping you off are the kind of advertising campaigns that have thousands of hundreds of thousands of reach, and you think. Are they going to see the worst version and think that we were... Sometimes people do talk about, you know, certain kind of magazines copying Fantastic Man, uh, or Fantastic Man copying certain magazines. You know, like they, they were produced like 10 years after Fantastic Man were launched. That sort of thing hurts. But I think once you start to see um, some of our ideas and some of the kind of taste levels and kind of general standards, if I'm being pompous, that I think that we've introduced being replicated by bigger women's magazines and therefore you think that um you are in a small way improving the quality of the way that women are represented in women's publishing then i think that's really a worthwhile um activity it's great if you get recognized for it as the source (laughs) but even if you don't i think then it's it's a worthwhile job isn't it and you know when people say oh you know it's not rocket science you're like that well no it's not but if people really uh um, level the kind of criticisms at the fashion industry for being really damaging to women in the way that they represent them, then equally the flip side of that is if you can make it better, then you're having equal influence. Mm-hmm. And that's something to take really seriously, I think. How much do you think the gentleman's had to do with this whole trend for featuring real women in magazines? How much do you think it is, Danielle? Well, I think it... <laughs> I think it has a lot to do with it. Well, I mean, real and real and real, they, they, they all mean different things, don't they? But um, um, it's a worthwhile thing to be um, trying to introduce soft glamour or, or you know, a different mode of representing women to women that just aren't just professional models. So great, I think is my answer to that. Mm. <laughs> and also, I wanted to talk a bit about how you were, you mentioned it already, you were the editor of Show Studio... And then you became the editor of a print magazine. So that's kind of not the traditional route to edit something (laughs) digital and then go into print. I've got a quote from you that says, you don't revere the medium too much. You don't get scared of it. It allows you to slip and slide across platforms. And I think that's very important if you're working in media today. Um, I was wondering if you wanted to comment on digital and how gentleman fits into that or how you how you what your relationship with digital is like now did you ever see that play the inquirer there was a play that the um national gallery of scotland did and then they brought it down to london and it was all about it was fantastic three different journalists were involved in researching oral history testimonies from different journalists paul flynn was one of them so was deborah Orr, and then i forgive me i forgot the other one but it was andrew hagan that they were working with and one of the kind of big themes that was in this um play, I hope they restage it because it just continues to be relevant, it's really interesting was just talking about the division in uh, newspaper publishing and writing since online and uh, old school reporting had kind of come up against each other and, and kind of hit off each other and the, the way that they 
staged it or they showed it was that this uh, young generation of kind of online writers had come in and none of them were trained journalists. So there was just a real severe lack of standards in that first phase. But there was a kind of um, uh, slightly entrepreneurial, um, uh, ambitious kind of culture amongst it. And then, of course, there was the, all the kind of... Uh, uh, tried and tested and brilliant hacks who were just getting completely demoralised by the lack of resources and the kind of truncated texts and all these sorts of things. So the two things were kind of going in the opposite direction of each other. And to be fair, in a way, I represented that first phase where I came into journalism from a museum background and actually I knew nothing about it. I can remember the designers sort of one of the first texts I ever put up and saying there's a widow in there. I mean literally looking sideways (laughs) to say what the hell is that? You know truly I knew nothing about it. I'd you know commissioned texts in museums and things where I'd worked but I didn't really know the kind of dynamics of journalism and actually I never really learned those standards either. Smart enough and I worked with brilliant people um, and they taught me how to do my job, but I never really learned um, what I needed to know really until I went into print. To begin with, we, we completely avoided it and we didn't have a website practically at all. We had a, something that resembled really an online masthead um, because I think our party line at that point was we were going to get the magazine right, which I think is fair because we absolutely could have made the mistake of dumping all our content online and it just being a kind of facsimile of the magazine and it not really having a kind of any heart or purpose or kind of integrity. Um, What we have now is certainly not a kind of um, news platform of any sort. It's really a platform for real-world events rather than a kind of um, sort of... um, uh, the, the digital form in its own and really what it is is a kind of locus for the gentlewoman club which is a big part of what we do now around this sort of two issues obviously they only come out twice a year so we have this 28,000 plus I think someone told me it's more than that now um, a club of people internationally that signed up for information and we do a lot of events ghost walk tours or picnics or running clubs or book groups and all that kind of stuff um, just to keep ourselves amused and also meet our readers etc and it's so, a way to make money for the magazine as well, well at the moment we don't charge anybody to do anything sometimes it's a way to work with some of our supporters we did a very evolved project with them um, paul smith and um i mean god love him he came on a bus for three hours down to uh, somerset with 50 readers who he'd never <laughs> met before um and co-designed a picnic blanket with us had a private tour of the martin creed exhibition and all these kind of meadowside entertainments and then back on the bus but you know, you wouldn't think that's a particularly, you know, attractive ask for him. But I think actually it ended up in a kind of, not only an experience, but a kind of media <laughs> assets, if you want to be that um, uh, uh, cynical about it, that were incredibly personal and, and very per- particular to the event and really, um, really beautifully done. So, yeah, I, I think actually we're only really interested in doing digital activities when they can kind of replicate the kind of values that we feel that the magazine represents in the terms of its commitment to quality journalism, but also in the kinds of photography, etc. but also that kind of really physical aspect, that kind of haptic mm. aspect that's such a big part of the magazine. Do you think, and could the gentleman exist in, an, in another medium, do you think? Well, what do you mean? I mean... <laughs> Could it be? Could it exist TV. as yeah, a TV or an art installation or something purely digital? Um, I think probably if I thought hard enough about it, I could think about mm. what it would be as a TV program or what it would be as a cafe or what it would be as a radio program. There's some things that it would never be. I, um, I, I don't think that it would be something about 
um, an art installation because that's a, such a singular sing, uh, singular viewpoint and such an ex personal expression by one person and actually the magazine is only really a kind of portrait of the people that make it it's actually very few people that really make it there's mm. kind of depending on what time in the process there's only between kind of six and kind of ten of us really that have our hands on that magazine together with the kind of constellation of different freelance contributors around it but I think I think that's something that I always thought about a, a women's magazine is kind of like a kind of imaginary party. Whereas I always, or I think we always want the gentlewoman to be a very literal party where you truly do see the people that make it rather than it be this kind of so-called gang of friends who actually never meet and, and never well, knew each other. Because that's too cliquey. Just it's really phony. I mean, mm. I know it's a very big part of kind of 90s and noughties kind of magazine media culture where it's about this kind of um, little star systems around these magazines but I don't think we want to set ourselves up as um, celebrities, I think the whole idea of, certainly of the club is to feel like we're, we're shoulder to shoulder and it, it, even the way that we try and do the launches of the magazine which is like us behind the till wrapping the magazines is the chance that you can just have a conversation where you don't have some kind of awful meet the editor moment mm. which you know, I don't really want to be part of and I'm sure they don't either. And, and it works really well for us. People come up and give us suggestions for the magazine and, you know, they get on the bus and then, you know, certain people that attend a lot of the events, they almost are becoming like prefects where they could pretty much run the club and the events themselves. And that's what we want mm -hmm. is that kind of, you know, I used to work at the Fawcett Library and we had the archive of the Women's Institute and that's what it's like, isn't it? You have all these different mm -hmm. kind of village halls around the land where there's all these kind of bossy bossy people <laughs> taking over their version of it. Love and it. that's the dream. Um, I also just finally wanted to ask you about, I, mean, I think you've always said that The Gentleman isn't a feminist magazine, but it kind of just assumes, it assumes feminism and it's, what the upshot of, of that is. is that I, right? I think I've said it's a, it is a feminist magazine. It's just not a magazine about feminism. Okay. Um, and what are your thoughts about this kind of third wave or maybe it's fourth wave now of, sort of young women who are addressing feminist feminism in quite a direct way on social media and in all these zines that are springing up? Well, yeah, I would have talked about third wave feminism yesterday. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and having... We just say there that this is the day when the results of the US election have been announced, so... <laughs> uh, I think, you know, I worked in the Fawcett Library amongst a lot of kind of second waivers, some first waivers, actually, um, feminists. And I very much felt like a kind of third wave feminist at that time. Certainly I was very different from those women and I thought I had different values. But what maybe I had forgotten was that with each generation you need to start again and uh, not assume that that battle's been won because for a whole generation of people it hasn't. Um, and I think there's never more evidence than that today. Mm. So um, I don't think there is any such thing as post-feminism. And so we're going to see Hillary. Are you going to try and get Hillary for the cover? Or well, we Huma did, um, Abaddon, maybe? We did interview the um, one of the people that worked for Hillary um, Clinton's foundation uh, in a previous issue. I can't remember. Was that an issue 11 or 12 or something? Maura Pali, about their activities. Really fascinating. And the integration of all their policy into all the kind of media that they touched, including television programming and things like that. It was really fascinating. All their work with Orange is the New Black and so on. Um, uh, but yeah, uh, politics is quite a difficult one for us to entice people to be part of the magazine um, because the, of the um, 
lead time. If you interview somebody in November and the issue isn't out till February, so much can happen in that time that they are naturally incredibly reticent to just be hostage to fortune, I guess, and kind of, uh, and change. However, um, recently we've been quite successful in that respect and Mary Black MP, youngest uh, member of the House, um, was in our last issue, um, the one with Kirsten Dunst on the cover. And though I gave it, my, I did the interview myself, she gave a great interview. Um, <laughs> and uh, no, that was fantastic. And I understand why a serious woman in that kind of position is very, very sceptical about getting involved with a women's magazine because, of course, they think they're going to be uh, trivialised inside the magazine, patronised by the advertising that's next to it and then kind of lampooned by their colleagues the minute that the piece is out. Um, So you just have to battle away and try and create a context where they would be proud to be part of. Um, I might be in conversation with a few important women in the public sphere um, at the moment, um, but we haven't confirmed our content for the issue, which will be out on the 21st of February. So you're just going to have to wait for that one. But fingers crossed, I hope so. Okay, can't wait. Um, Shall we open up now to the audience to ask questions? If anybody wants to ask Penny anything, I'm sure you do. Oh, go on. We can always edit you out if it's terrible. Yeah, exactly. And we've got the mic. (laughs) Don't forget to speak into the mic. Uh, Roger Treadry. Hi, Roger. Um, I guess the fact that it's biannual enables you to be really perfectionist about it. But with, what did you say, 99,000 sales? I mean, it, it, it's a really amazing achievement, that, isn't it? To Thanks. Take it to that kind of sales performance. So yeah. do you think you could make it quarterly or make it more regular or do you think that would it would no longer be so special because obviously you've got this great club which i think is a fantastic achievement as well and you just see this possibility of evolving it more and just producing slightly more frequently well obviously that's a question we're having all the time because um we've got a massively high sell through a lot of um, biannuals only expect to um uh uh, um, sell something like I think it's 25% or something like of what they print and we're up between 60 and 90 I believe that was the last time we heard from Comac it's funny how slowly you get those figures through um, so they tell us yeah of course we could be quarterly the question of course is whether the um, I'm going to be very technical and boring with you but the um, uh, advertising revenue is really there that was the great hope wasn't it they kept saying that there was going to be um, advertising that would accompany these other two collections the pre-collection and the cruise but that didn't actually necessarily materialize and as you see monthlies drawing back into quarterly and uh, it suggests that it's not really there so if you print a magazine that's as uh, uh, perfectionist to use your, your word um or perfection maybe um uh it's extremely expensive um, so really we only cover our um, uh, distribution and um, our, the production of our magazine and everything else has to kind of um, be rely on advertising. So th- that's one question. And then the second one is, would it really be that special if we came knocking on your door twice as often as we already do? Um, I-, I don't know. Um, certainly I don't think people want daily content from us. I mean, if we asked people, they might say, yes, we do. But I don't want to hear from us that often, especially... Because such not not just because it's it's charming to be surprising, but it's it, 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 a lot of work goes into making the magazines, and I, I just know that we couldn't lavish that amount of care on the kind of editing and the commissioning and 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 all the design, which you know we were in production for a month. That's unheard of. No other magazine does that. Well, probably possibly they do, but not none that I've heard of. Um, and I love being a periodical. I love that idea that. Um, we every 
energy goes into distilling everything to just one moment and then you get a kind of broadcast from that point in time. And it's not ever intended to sort of hedge our bets that what will be timely in June as well as February. I mean, there's just no such thing. You just have to completely work towards the zenith of activity and then crash and then build back up again. And that's the great pleasure of going back to answer your question now. I've remembered it, Danielle. Um, of, um, I forgot it. Thanks. Coming away from... Um, being online where you're spinning plates but you can never really push yourself to that total apogee of exertion because you've you've got nowhere to crash back down from because you're just keeping it going churning, churning, churning it out and eventually you just kind of erode whatever energy reserves that you have whereas really we nearly kill ourselves twice, twice a year and then allow ourselves to grow back up I don't know if it's particularly healthy but I do think it is visible if I weren't to be involved in making this magazine, I think it's visible from the outside that, the, yeah, the people that make it are total perfectionists and that wouldn't be possible if we were doing it uh, every month or quarterly. If we had a bigger team, possibly, but then I know that's also a different dynamic. My friends that work at monthly women's monthly magazines that are working in the features department, etc., they tell me that they close their section of the magazine and then they never see it again. I mean, that almost gives me a panic attack, you know, um, this idea that, you know, it goes off and somehow it goes through the subs and through the editor and maybe it comes out with different captions. Ah! You know, I I can't even imagine that. So it's a privilege to be this controlling. (laughs) 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 Sure. Is there anybody else? Um. Hi. Hello. My name is Anatole. Hi, Anatole. Um, talking of being controlling, um, <laughs> I feel like you have quite You've a long heard. time relationship with your fashion editors. Yeah. How much do you think they contribute to the look of the magazine? Um, how much do you control what they put into the magazine, or is it vice versa? How does that work? Our fashion director is Jonathan Kay, and he's been with us since we launched the magazine. But I've actually worked with him since 2001 when I worked at Show Studio, so I've known him for a long, long time. And actually, he's a very big part. Me and he and Veronica um, are in a very intense kind of three-point triangle, love triangle, where there's, um, yeah, we finish each other's sentences, etc. And there's a lot, he's a very big part of um, commissioning and deciding what's on the list that kind of goes into the issue. So it's not just fashion. It's not like there's a kind of fashion island. And then it's a big surprise to us what's coming into the magazine. We're quite an unusual company in that you've got an editor that its background is in photography and you've got a art director who's incredibly editorially directional and then Jonathan is uh, actually very adept in both I bet you he probably could be an editor or an art director I mean he's he's kind of unbelievable so we're in a very luxurious position but if you're actually asking about the way we work on kind of art directors beyond our our uh, sorry stylists beyond our fashion director yeah we do, it's a very small pool of people we work with because we ask for a lot and it's almost a bit of a kind of, not an education, but it, it, there's a lot of getting to know each other so that we can ask as much as we do and expect as much as we do. So I, I, we don't take many risks on people and we have to um, sort of build up a very um, fluid and long-standing conversation with them. And probably sometimes you might find that we only start to really get it right with certain photographers and stylists, maybe the third try. So by that time, it's gone through kind of three seasons of pain and and you know so there's a huge investment on both sides and we're very lucky to have the p- people 
that we do because they have to be extremely patient with us. There's a lot of back and forth and a lot of retries and a lot of reshoots and a lot of rewrites. Uh, but at the same time, you know, don't think that on the other side that we're not trying just as hard to make the best space for their work. But um, yeah, I think we're probably quite unusual. Are you just trying, in a polite way, trying to tell us we're known to be difficult? Because <laughs> I think we are. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, uh, Jonathan's pretty special and he's got a very big bearing on the kind of taste levels in the issue for sure. He's a very good politician. <laughs> he understands the business, that's for sure. Hi, I'm Claire. Um, and this is my bakery, Violet. So I'm curious about starting a business um, and you starting The Gentlewoman. And um, I think we started around the same time in 2010. That's right. Yeah. In the middle of a recession. Great idea. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly my, my question. And I just wondered if everyone said, you're crazy. What are you doing? And, and what made you sort of persevere? Yeah, they did. Um, we first started having conversations about um, a so-called women's version of Fantastic Man in 2008. So obviously that was the big year, the kind of implosion. Um, and I backed out, not for that reason, because I didn't really know whether my bosses were entirely serious about it, and took another job um, at university, much to their chagrin. And um, during, I started hearing rumours that they were they were <laughs> thinking of doing it, and I was thinking, they can't possibly be, because I kept reading all the things in the trade press saying that kind of women's publishing was doomed and kind of consumer magazines were, you know, plummeting etc and I remember sending an email to Jot van Bennekom saying hey listen are you still doing this thing and he's like yeah um well not that that's the tone that came over the email but that's how I imagine him and his Dutch accent uh, responding to me and then it wasn't until I actually heard a rumor of who they were thinking of appointing in my place that I jumped back on it going you can't give it to her um <laughs> and um who was it Oh, I can't say. Um, uh, she knows who she is. Um, <laughs> um, and uh, swiftly uh, um, uh, timetabled a, a meeting with him uh, within the week. Um, and we were both eating crab salad, if you really want to know the, uh, the exact details. And I said, oh, Yuppie, you still doing that magazine? Uh, and he's like, yeah. And I said, uh, would you still be interested in me editing it? And he still had his fork in his mouth. And he's like, Yeah. It was just like the it was like the rapture. It was like kismet. I just knew it was going to work. So um, yeah. So in, in fact, it was kind of against the backdrop of kind of adversity, etc. But they, you know, they they're two extremely. He and Gert Yonkers, uh, who is the um, editor of um, Fantastic Man, of course, they had started Fantastic Man out of the proceeds they'd made on a fanzine, but which they'd both started with I don't know five hundred euros of their own money. They've just been extremely careful all the way. So I think sometimes we present at conferences and things, and people imagine that we've got some enormous backer and stop to ask. You know, when we say we're independent, I think they think we mean we you know are printed on kind of uncoated paper or something. You know, that is a kind of aesthetic statement rather than actually a financial situation (laughs) but um yeah no they they it's not gentlewoman necessarily that's been amazing and kind of uh roger in kind of growing our readership etc we are absolutely on the shoulders of what fantastic man did and when we started we printed seventy-two thousand, which was the same as fantastic man and you know by that stage fantastic man had just printed its 10th issue we thought we were being really cocksure uh, to kind of equal their readership. But the women's market's just a completely different beast. And of course it took off. Fantastic Man is doing fine, but the gentlewoman's shooting ahead. And we're still growing, uh, you know, which I feel self-conscious about kind of bragging about because I understand that a lot of our peers aren't, you know, it's it's difficult times, but 
we met our targets uh, and we bro- we set a new record with the last issue. It, it's it's fingers crossed. It's going really well. Thank, thanks. <laughs> As are you, Claire? Yeah, Claire. What's <laughs> with your, your delicious quiche? <laughs> <laughs> Any more questions? Which was... Lucinda. Um, oh, yeah, sorry. This is Lucinda. Hi, Lucinda. Um, hi. Um, I was just curious about, you know, you talk about the clubs and the, every, all the women going on the bus um, and also that interaction that you're now having with your readers and the opportunity to hear what they want. And I wondered whether or not, even in the time that you have, you know, since 2010, whether the requests or insights that you've had maybe from a younger readership have changed or how are women changing that are reading your magazine? Ah, that's, that's a really interesting question and one I've not really thought about, but yeah, it has. To begin with, you got a lot of requests for women that you felt were the kind of icons that you might see in other women's magazines, the kind of cool woman uh, that you're sort of supposed to like. And I think once we really set out our stall and there were more issues in a bigger hopefully wider, more unexpected selection of women. And then some people that, you know, well, I'll come to that in a minute, but that they started to kind of go with the taste levels and you got slightly more bonkers um, suggestions that you were more pleased to hear rather than the kind of obvious female icons. But um, once you've got your Angela Lansbury's and your Jekka McVicker, the herb grower, and the kind of Maddie Hill from EastEnders, and people start to understand the kind of poles of your taste, um, then it feels right to have a Christy Turlington in the mix, or then have you know um, uh, somebody, like Aaliyah Sadu or something, somebody. But it's important that there's, I, th- I think that there's the kind of trust in us that the pendulum swing will always be between. Uh, actress like um, Kirsten Dunst and then a writer I think Sadie Smith is the first writer we've ever had on the cover Um, or you know Adele now seems you know a no-brainer but when we first did her we were were the first women's magazine to put her on the cover Um, not that she hadn't been offered to others I should add Um, she'd been on the cover of um, music magazines but not fashion magazines and I heard quite a few stories about that that issue getting slapped down on other women by publishers on other editors desks to say you know she's smoking on that cover as well (laughs) she is yeah yeah, she is it's quite I mean that was something I I just she'd given up smoking at that point she she was she was reenacting it for us smoking and then with when you did Ina's Van Lambert she's wearing a moustache that's right like this little touches of irreverence that I think are quite interesting the big thing with Inez, although you might not think it's particularly shocking, but Inez has got her hand held up at the um, uh, picture plane so you can see the inside of her hand, not the outside of her hand. And for Inez, it, uh, the inside of the hand is like the pink shot, is the bit of the woman that you don't normally see. So for her, that's an incredibly erotic gesture. <laughs> I don't know whether you got that, along with the moustache, you know. <laughs> but, but the interesting but no. thing that people never say about that issue is, of course, we've got a full frontal nude in that issue, uh, shot by Helmut Newton. Um, but, you know, the minute we did a topless story, that was very controversial a few issues later. But actually, you've got, like, all of Inez in that shot. So uh, it, it's interesting. depends on the photography. Any more questions? Kim? <laughs> or should we just have a drink? Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks so much, Penny. It's been a real pleasure. pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Danielle. Thanks, everybody. That was Penny Martin talking about The Gentlewoman. I'm Danielle Radoichin. Tune in soon to hear the next Violet Sessions interview. 
and you can download previous episodes on iTunes or your favourite podcast app. If you're interested, you can also get regular updates about Violet Sessions on Instagram by following at Violet Sessions. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.